All right, everybody. Um, hope everyone had a good week this week. Uh, sorry for the delay in getting this out. I had some family stuff to deal with this week, so um, this unfortunately had to get put on the back burner. But uh, it's Sunday morning, so we're going to get it up there now, and you can listen to it uh, in between games today or whatever. So um, let me get right to the questions here. Uh, what is your take on possible capital requirements of Fannie Mae? Alex Pollock proposed 4% yesterday. Previous proposal by FHFA 2.5. Most will pin 3. Basel 3. 3.75 to 4. From OLS Pay on page 13, figure 4. What's the effect of preferred stock in commons? Well, I don't, I don't see a lot of effect. On, uh, again, so, so, I, this is, so this is tough. So if, if, if the goal is to truly have competitors enter the market and compete with Fannie Mae, then the capital requirements would be the same for all everyone in the space, right? You can't have you can't have Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac at this percentage and allow competitors come in at lower percentage, right? You need to have consistency, just like the banks. So the mortgage insurers would have certain capital requirements. The higher you set them at, you then diminish competition because it's a higher barrier to entry, right? It, it, any <clears throat> highly regulated industries have high barriers to entry because of the regulations. Take a look at tobacco, right? When's the last time you saw a new tobacco company? 50 years? <laughs> Maybe 60 years ago, 70 years ago? It's so highly regulated, the barriers to entry are so high, it eliminates competition. So if they set it too high, they'll never achieve what they want. So I think it's going to be three-ish, if I had to guess. Um, it may be enter at this level, and depending on your, it may climb higher depending on the amount of assets you have, meaning the number of loans you're insuring. Maybe it steps up, maybe something like that. Um, but, you know, this is all guesswork. So um, as far as the effect of preferred in the common stock, Obviously, the more capital they have to raise, the more dilution for the common stock. I mean, right? If you, have to, if you double the capital requirement, and so, so instead of having to hold $50 billion, they have to hold you know, $100 billion. I'm just throwing numbers out. Well, that's another $50 billion of dilution for the common stock. So the higher the capital requirements, the more negative it is for the common stock. Its effect on the preferred stock depends on how the preferred stock is treated. And we don't know how it's going to be treated. If it's, if it's converted immediately and then they raise capital, well, then it's, those holders will be will diluted along with other common shareholders. But if it's, deleted, if it's converted to par, right, you could sell the common and you make your 100%, wait for the dilution to happen, then buy it back in. That, that's a strategy. And so it all depends on what happens. They, maybe they raise the money, then convert it, in which case there's almost no effect on the preferred. So, again, we don't know. It's all guesswork. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's my answer. I, I don't, you know, I, I think more or less around three is reasonable. So, we'll see. Um, Tuesday at House Financial Services Committee hearing, the Trump administration proposed for the least comments. Firstly, what was your overall take in this hearing? It was a political shit show. All these hearings are... I mean, there's dog and pony shows. You know, it's people 
Um, you know, they're talking about housing reform. One guy's talking about conflicts of interests and who's going to profit if they do this or do that. And when the administration have stock in Fannie Mae, I mean, knowing full well that they can't own stock in the GSEs that they regulate as secretary of FHFA, as secretary of treasury. They can't, they can't. These guys know that, but they're going to ask the question anyway. And it's just, the, you know, you, you get a three and a half hour hearing, maybe seven minutes of interesting dialogue. And really that was it. They answered, you know, these guys aren't even there. Half the time, if you look at the, you look at the room, it's half full. So the guys come back in and out, in and out. And they're asking the same questions over and over and over. I mean, I, you watch it just in case something happens, knowing full well that of that three and a half hours, seven to ten minutes might be worthwhile. Uh, secondly, Foster grilled Calibri and Munition on conflict, conflict of interest accusation due to Paulson's investment. From my viewpoint, there's absolutely no conflict of interest since the biggest beneficiaries are Treasury and shareholders. However, what do you think FHFA and Treasury will act to not like they have a conflict of interest? Will they find a way to punish preferred holders like a hair out? What's the risk here? Well, I think they act that there is no conflict of interest. Okay? At the end of the day, the government is the largest shareholder of the company. And that guy Foster, he, he, he's, he's so fixated on punishing hedge funds, okay, which is what he wants to do. He wants to punish the hedge funds because they might make money. You know, not understanding these hedge funds have teachers' pensions invested with them, California teachers' pensions, labor unions invested with them, I mean, retirement funds invested with them. It's not, yeah, okay, you punish John Paulson, but who, John Paulson's not going to go bankrupt if his, his investment's wiped out. But a lot of, a lot of pension funds and unions are going to get hurt because they're investing with them. And these guys just don't grasp that. And the government's the biggest common shareholder. So wipe out the government stake too, and then hurt the government and hurt the taxpayer. So stuff like that is just, it's, you, under, you see someone there who clearly does not understand what he's talking about. He had no idea, and, and Calabria was getting frustrated with him, trying to explain to him. And the guy just, he, he kept saying the same thing over and over. Shareholders should be wiped out, shareholders should be wiped out, shareholders should be wiped out. And finally, Calabria said, well, if that's what's necessary, that's what we'll do, just to shut the guy up. I don't think for one second he believes that. You, if you wipe out current shareholders, preferred shareholders, good luck raising a dime. And oh, yeah, by the way, you wipe out the treasury stake too, because the warrants are on the common stock. You wipe out the common stock, the warrants are gone. You can't have warrants on nothing. So it, 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 that was one of the more frustrating exchanges because it was clear... Foster had no idea what he was talking about and was simply trying to make a point that shareholders should get wiped out, shareholders should get wiped out. So they should not profit off this. Only the taxpayer should. Well, the taxpayer has warrants on 79% of the company. So go ahead, wipe them out too. Everybody loses. Good job. Um, I think they, in you get into hearings like this, they have to play, you know, they can't just say, we're not going to put it in receivership. They have to say it's an option. Okay, and now uh, Harris says they can act as a conservator or a receiver, not both. They can't go from one to the other. They have to play conservator right now. It's in conservatorship, right? And they're profitable. There's no legitimate way right now you could put them in receivership. You'd, it'd be even more lawsuits. It would be tied up on lawsuits for the next 20 years. 
right? You can't put a profitable operation into receivership. But he'll say, if we have to, we will, just because, you know, it's like when your kid asks you a question a million times, you say, oh, yeah, we'll think about it. (laughs) You know, can we go here? Can we go here? Yeah, maybe Sunday we'll go there. That's exactly what that was. It was the exact same thing, just to shut him up. Um, I did post the whole hearing on the blog, um, um, and I did... um, uh, note the, the time points of the, a of the foster exchange and a couple other exchanges that I thought were noteworthy. I think there's sadly three of them. Um, uh, but it's on there and so it, you don't have to watch the whole thing if you don't want. Um, IIPR continues to expand its cannabis empire at a rapid speed. Recently acquired three new properties, two Illinois, one in Florida. However, stock price continues to drop. Why? Why? Well, so answer the first part of the question yeah stock's been around 70 bucks now for the last probably three four weeks the cannabis space as a whole has gotten hit and you know it's it's in the etfs it's in it's in the mutual funds it's in all this stuff and so when you know those get sold off the space gets sold off they're going to get sold off along with it um at the end of the day right we're still up you know 90 some percent over what we bought it at little over a year ago so that's great um it's one of those things from recency bias and i think i talked about this last week if i had told you when we bought this in august this is going to double in about a year you would have been and when it doubled in a year you'd have been thrilled but because it surpassed that and fell back to the double in a year we're disappointed at the end of the day the fundamentals keep improving and if the fundamentals keep improving the dividend 80 to 100 percent year over year raises you know, earnings 100% year-over-year raises, properties expanding like this, uh, the stock was going to follow. It's going to happen. Right? People right now are just selling anything cannabis, even though this isn't even really a cannabis stock. They don't touch the plant. have nothing to do with the plant. They're just building grow facilities. Which, by the way, and that's a common misperception, is not just a warehouse. I mean, these medical grow facilities are like a biotech plant. They really are. They're, it's really something. If, you, if, if, if there's one near you, ask if you can tour it. <clears throat> it's impressive. Um, okay. On page 29, part two of its two, uh, August 8th 10Q, due to losing emerging growth company status on December 31st, 2019, we are kicking substantial costs and significant demands being placed by management in connection with complying with non-emerging growth company requirements earlier than we planned because significant profit drop or slowdown in 1Q20. Um, I, don't, I don't think so because you know, the, they lost the status on December 31st, 2019. So they've been dealing with this all year. There's not going to be more costs later this year and in the next year than there were beginning. Most of the costs are going to be borne up front, right? With additional disclosure, compliance, all this other kind of crap. That's all. Most of that cost is borne up front as you build out these systems and get more people in and do what you have to do. After that, they're just running on autopilot. So I don't think we're going to see a significant price, uh, profit slowdown. We, I think we would have seen it already. Or it's going to be gradual. You know, it's, I, we haven't seen it. And 
the end of the day, this cost is not something that's going to double. It's the we're up, you know, we're up four times in the number of properties, right? So since we bought it, four x number of properties from eight to thirty-three properties, four times number of properties. The the co additional costs aren't going to take away that growth and the extra income from those, and, and and not to mention what's coming online and what's in the pipeline. So yeah, there'll be more SG&A costs and stuff like that, but it's not going to be to the point where you know profits going to go from you know what is what's growing at to growing at ten percent year over year. It's not that incremental, but they have to disclose it because SG&A is going to jump. And people are going to be like, oh my God, oh my God, why is it jump? What's the jump? What's going on? And let's, well, this is why. So, um, if Ackman really believes HAC can play out just like the Irving company, which I do too, I don't understand the reason behind selling the company at a premium to the stock price now. Any thoughts? Well, so yeah, I mean, I think, again, and, and we don't know, you know, the stock was stock around the 1 to 120 range, you know, and, and if he, you know, it's one, so it's one of those things. Do you think it could be a $200 stock in two or three years? Yes. Well, if someone's going to give you $200 for it now, right? Take it. Someone's going to give you $175 for it. You know, so I think it's one of those scenarios. And I think um, as much as that, you know, why not see if someone wants to pay us all this money for it? Let people go through it. And I think maybe there's assets other people want we can sell that aren't so great. I think that's really what happened. And that was really the real benefit of this is that, you know, there were people who couldn't buy the whole company, but there were clearly people interested in certain assets. So they took a look at these assets and like, you know, so we're going to lose 40 million in NOI when we sell these $2 billion in assets. Okay. But we're saving... 40, uh, 40 million, I don't know if I said billion, 40 million in NOI. But we're saving 50 million in reduced overhead and structure costs. And these assets are yielding about 3%, which is a dismal yield. When you have other assets yielding double digits. And you have the ability to invest in your existing properties. You know, the Woodlands, Summerlin, Hawaii. At substantially higher yields. And you're freeing up capital and resources to do that. So I, that's, that, I think, was the real benefit of the strategic review. Um, and I think, it, it, I think, based on what I heard the plan, it's, a, it's, a very, it's gonna, I think it's good. You know, the, the new CEO has been killing it with the company for, you know, since he's been there. And he has experience doing stuff like this before. Um, you know, as far as why is WineRib out, again, I don't know. Um, if I had to guess, and this is just a guess, I don't know. I, you know, I come up with two scenarios. Uh, one is he's a Dallas guy. He's a, he's a Dallas guy. And he didn't want to move to Houston. And he's made $100 million. He's got warrants for another $50 million, And maybe decided that, you know what? I'm, I'm really not liking this public company CEO thing. You know, he's not a... Um, He's not a raw, raw guy. He's a quiet guy. He just wants to go do his job and plug away. And, you know, maybe he wasn't comfortable being in that role and said, I'd rather be a CEO of a prior company. I can run and run on my own time frame and do that. That's, that's, where he, that's what he did before. So maybe that, maybe that was why he just, they decided, you know, he's like, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I don't want to do this. Um, 
you know, maybe the, you know, them realizing that, you know, hey, we could save $50 million annually and why haven't we figured this out already? And, you know, why do we have a headquarters in Dallas, Texas when we have space that we own in the woodlands we could put it and, you know, we, sh- we should have been doing this a long time ago and $50 million a year for five, six years or $300 million not invested in the company. You know, this is something that you should have known, blah, blah, blah. you know, something like that. I, I, again, I don't know, um, but maybe some combination of the two. Who knows? But, you know, the company is performing. NOI has grown. Um, so I, I, I don't, I don't feel as though um, it was any massive failure on his part to, I mean, the, for, the performance of the stock has not been great the last four years. I mean, it's 14% annually since inception, which again, if I told you we're going to make 14% on this a year, every year when we bought it, um, and we were where we are now, and it was a steady stream up, you'd be thrilled, but because expectations are higher, it was higher, it came back down, it's kind of been stagnant, it rocketed up in the beginning. You know, people are like, what's going on? People get impatient, so. But I do like the plan. I do, I've always liked when companies shed assets that are low yielding because, you know, it, it's, it's two things. You're either paying staff to run something that's not making you much money, which is, a, it's, that's really a drain on the company. Or you have existing staff focused on this instead of focusing on other projects you could be doing that would bring you a higher yield. So, I mean, either way, it's, it's just a negative, right? So by getting rid of that, you free up the cash that you're investing in that for other things. You're not making much out of it anyway. So, and then either you're getting rid of staff or transferring staff with that asset or the existing staff you have running is now focused on better things. That, there's nothing wrong with that at all. More focused company, focusing on its key prospect and you know what, buying back stock. And that's the next second part of the question. How much buybacks do you think they will purchase the next couple of years? The stock remains relatively flat. I mean, Ackman's already committed to upping his stake in the company. Um, you know, it, a lot was made about him a couple of years ago, and he, he was—he admitted he was doing. I, I got crushed by redemptions. I had to sell some. He had to. He got redemptions. Now he's got permanent capital, and he's able to take a, a larger stake. And he's—he's he's said he's going to do that. And we've been clamoring for buybacks for years, um, and I think they're at the point now where we're going to get it. As far as how much, I—I I don't know. Um, I, knowing Ackman, it's not going to be like a $100 million buyback. It's not going to be some, you know what I mean? It's going to be, you know, $500 million, a billion-dollar buyback, which on a, you know, $8 billion company is a lot. Um, again, if they, depending on the time frame, right? So they were going to back, buy back $500 million stock in the next two years, then that's great. I mean, they're selling 200 200 $2 billion in assets. I think they said they're going to yield about $600 million from it because they're selling, you know, debt and all that kind of stuff. They're selling the debt with it and everything like that, transferring debt. So it'll come away with about $600 million. Um, so, you know, $100 million of that goes to, you know, general expenses, da, da, da. $500 million goes to a buyback. I think that would be good for the stock. And it seems to me that based on the wording of what he was saying, that... There's going to, it's going to be a perpetual buyback that, you know, he said investors are going to profit by a more focused company, increasing NOI and a consistent gradual reduction of the share count. 
So you get increasing NOI, decreasing shares. That's a good mixture. Because you're growing organically, you're shrinking the share count. It's better for existing shareholders. And at the end of the day, you know, he's the largest shareholder. He has the largest stake in the company. No one benefits more than him from an increasing stock price. So I think, um, you know, he's not an activist running it. He's not, you know, doing that. He knows real estate, obviously. Uh, he has people in place that know it, know what they're doing. I, I mean, I think it's going to work out, you know. Maybe the frustration and the reason why I left is because that some of this stuff hasn't been done. And, you know, you can't have the status quo for four or five years and keep telling people, you know, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. So you add those two factors, you add increasing NOI, you add decreasing share count, and then you add the seaport opening and the seaport results, which I think are going to be really strong. Put all that together and, you know, next couple of years could be really good for shareholders. Um... When does, oh, next, I'm sorry, next question was, when do our patients run out with HCC? Seems to be Aquin got very frustrated, cleared the deck, management deal, sale model. I don't think they're going to sell it. And he, he all but said they weren't. Um, it's, it's a long-term asset that doesn't fit into a lot of people's wheelhouse to raise money for. You know, uh, It's an asset that's going to produce a lot of money over the years. Uh, but it's it's not something, like he said, that, you know, 30 people looked at it, 14 signed NDAs, seven were really interested. Uh, they're waiting to hear back from one. Um, and uh, the, the results were the same. They couldn't take on a project like that. You know, it's not like buying a utility, which is a long investing asset, but it's it's built. And you're just basically running a power plant. You know, the the level of, construction that needs to be done with this and to grow it stuff like that there aren't many people out there that could handle it and so they you know it made it tough given the size of it so i mean and then you never know so consider this scenario so maybe you sell off two billion dollars worth of assets okay and you buy back some shares well now you have a smaller more focused company so maybe some of these people who originally like you know i can't do it because of this this and this maybe they come back to the table here and they say hey these assets that we don't want anyway are gone now. Well, can we have a conversation? That's a very real possibility. You know, maybe the reason a lot of these people couldn't buy this stuff is because of these ancillary assets that they didn't want to have to then inherit and sell off. You know, you go sell the stuff off first and then we'll come back and take a look and see what, what you got for a company then. That's, you know what, there's nothing... There's nothing crazy about that thought process. It could happen. And then maybe you have a, you know, because you've sold off that, you've had a buyback, you know, a year and a half, the Seaport's really starting to put some NOI on the table. Maybe you got a stock that's 140, 150. You know, you, you never know. It gets interesting. So... You know, I think that, um, I don't know, I, 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 don't, I don't think that's a crazy thought process. And then I got a, um, I got a uh, question on TPL. TPL stock price has been sliding. So I think part of the thing, so, and I had a conversation this week about it, and 
The, a proxy contest is a double-edged sword. Because if you win, if Stahl wins, Horizon wins to get what they want, that's really good, right? We get more disclosure. You know, do we go to a C-Corp? If it doesn't make financial sense, Murray Stahl is not going to force them to convert to a C-Corp. He's just not going to do that. It wouldn't be in his best financial interest. But I think either way, no matter what happens, we're going to get more disclosure. So maybe we stay in trust, but we get C-Corp type disclosure from the company. That's a win. That's a win. But the problem in the proxy contest is you have to, you have to point out the problems to get to the win. So when you point out problems, what happens? People sell stock. Right? People get nervous. How's this going to end up? What's going to happen? I don't want to own this. You know, they don't take the time to look through it. Like, you know, you know, I don't see, even if they don't convert, because it doesn't make sense, we get more disclosure. If, if, the, if, if they vote right along party lines, they don't convert, they don't get more disclosure, well, then we go to another vote. And Horizon will not have a gag order after this is over. So they're on the board, they're on the committee right now. They can sit there and say, here's the committee notes. Here's what was discussed. Here's why it was turned down. Here's what they said. And I don't think that would be good for the existing trustees. I think that would that process would only increase shareholder anxiety or shareholder anger. And I think the results of any future vote would be even more slanted than the first time. So I think you know, it's December 31st, they have to have their work done by. Then they have 30 days after that to make the recommendation. And after the recommendation is over, the gag order is over. So everyone's free to talk. So I think that, I think it's going to turn up fine for us. But I think this is part of the reason for, you know, in, it, um, uh, uncertainty is part of the reason for this. The stock, stock price haven't fallen to where it has. And when that uncertainty is gone, I think the stock price will begin to reflect the underlying fundamentals of the company. And I do think whether they convert or not, we get more disclosure. And more disclosure will help the stock price because people, it's, it will be easier to understand company and easier to analyze company. Right now it's esoteric, it's opaque. It's hard to figure out. You know, they put out an AK with no expenses on it. <laughs> you know, it's like, where's the money going? Where's it coming from? You know, it, can you give us more detail? Without any detail, people are, you know, it's, it's a lot, a lot of work to dig into this company and figure things out. And most people aren't willing to do it. When they give you the information, it makes it easier. People jump in. So I think that's what's going to happen. So I'm not the least concerned about TPL um, at all. I do think it's going to be a, a winner over the years. Uh, the Permian Basin is, uh, you know, Kinder Morgan just put a 2 billion cubic feet a day pipeline in the Permian, operational. That 2 billion cubic feet of gas a day is now flowing from the Permian. That wasn't flowing a month ago. Okay, that was being flared. You know, TPL makes no money when stuff is flared. They make money when it's transported. There's no less than 14 pipelines screaming into the Permian right now. As that, stuff, as that oil and gas gets taken away, that's, that's TPL royalties. And when it crosses their land or when it comes to their land. Right now, it's just sitting there. It's being flared off. So there's, there's more profit drivers coming. 
Don't be concerned about rig counts falling because in the Permian you can drill a lot more oil with a lot less rigs. It's just, uh, and that's the beauty of the Permian, why people are racing there and why it's the low cost leaders because of the, the geography. There's so many layers of oil. They can drill so deep and get so many, so many more barrels of oil with so few rigs. It's technology. It's no different than, you know, getting 10 miles a gallon in your car in 1970 and getting 45 on it now. It's the same thing. So, I think, I think TPL is going to be fine. I, think, I still think the risk to oil prices are higher, not lower. I'm not convinced that anything's settled in the Middle East at all. Um, so, that's where I am. So, I think that's not a lot of questions this week. Um, oh, hold on. Oh, I thought I screwed it up. Uh, but I think that's where... Yeah, that's about where we are. Let me check. Let me do one more quick check because I checked and there's always one that sneaks in someplace weird. And uh, oh, here's one. Any comments on the hearing oh, stock price? Yeah, so I already answered that question. So yeah, so I think that's it for this week. So I hope everyone's weekend so far has been good. Um, I hope you're if you're a football fan. I hope your team wins today. Uh, unless you're an Eagles fan, I, I can't root against my Bills, so I have to. I have to shun you for this week, and I apologize. And I'll root for you to win next week, wherever you play. So have a great rest of the weekend, everybody.